Hello and welcome to October's Ready Steady Read. I'm Chris Kane and on the programme this month, along with James Lavery, we'll be discussing spies. What makes a good spy novel? We'll be talking about books we've read this month. I've been reading Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol. It's the book that's been all over the bestseller lists. More about that in a minute. There's iWrite, where we look at how technology is impacting on the world of books. And then there's Bits and Pieces, that part of the programme that's fast becoming everybody's favourite slot. We've put things in, we just can't work out where else to put them. James, welcome to this month's programme. How are you? I'm not bad at all, Chris. How are you? You're keeping well? Doing fine, although I'm a little bit suspicious about the world at large at the moment because I've been reading Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol. Every yeah. symbol's out to get us. That's what I'm, I'm learning. It's all secret organisations. The Illuminati are after us. There'll be people out there just willing to take over the world at the drop of a mason's apron. Well, I'm going to be talking about The Lost Symbol in a second. You've also been reading a book, The History Book by Humphrey Hawksley, which is a wonderful name. Tell me a little bit about that. The history book by Humphrey Hoxley is uh, not a history book at all, but a spy novel. Humphrey Hoxley is a BBC correspondent, and I have to say writes this very well. His uh, hero, if that's the right word, uh, in the book is a woman called Kat Polanski, and she is a contractor in that she works for a secret organisation, obviously an offshoot of the NSA or the CIA or one of those other kind of alphabet soups that they have over in Washington, and her job is to kind of break into places and steal bits out of their computers so that she can record uh, or give back to them all the information that they're looking for and it's very well written and very well done what am i what would i like most about it i think you would like the fact that it's probably uh how shall i put this it, it kind of tends towards the conspiracy theory again if you've been reading dan brown you'll believe that everybody's lo- overlooking your shoulder for everything that you do and there's a degree of truth in that as we've already discussed in previous programs and this kind of adds to that uh, feeling of paranoia you know just because uh, you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you and there's a degree of that goes on well that's what i'd like about it what wouldn't i like about it i think what you wouldn't like about it it is not perhaps the kind of page turner the thriller that it ought to be i don't mean by that that it's not well enough written as we've discussed but i find it an easy book to put down now for me a book that i really like is not an easy book to put down um, and that's uh, you know that's a kind of hard thing for me but I can put this down I can pick it up again I'm really enjoying it but you know it's absolutely not one of those ones you would sit up all night to finish it well I've been reading Dan Brown's The the, the Lost Symbol it's the third novel involving the symbologist Robert Langdon do you know I was very disappointed to find out that symbologism isn't an actual real study it's not at Harvard University and no one actually studies it I was quite upset by that Anyway, this time around he's back talking about the Masons, a group he touched on with the Da Vinci Code, and they guard a secret that can unite the world if revealed at the right time, or it could plunge us into eternal darkness if told at the wrong time. Uh, One of Langdon's friends is a senior Mason in Washington, D.C. He's kidnapped by one of these forces of darkness who needs Langdon to unravel the mystery and hand over this this huge power. And the book takes place over a single night, taking uh, the reader all around Washington, D.C.'s most famous monuments and landmarks, and as always with a Dan Brown novel, you will never look at some of these monuments in the same way ever again. I can understand that. I mean, I'm aware, for example, that the American money has Masonic symbols on it. And I was well aware, as I'm sure many people are from their history lessons, that George Washington was, for example, a Mason. So it would be very interesting to read some of that and to see Dan Brown's take on it. I read it over two nights. I found it quite difficult to put down. Dan Brown's style isn't the most eloquent, but he does move the story on a piece. I found that some of the supporting characters were very weak, that the bad guy never really comes across as evil as Dan Brown needs him to be. One of the characters is a CIA hygiene that I had difficulty forming any opinion of. Uh, and, you know, that, that that's where he lets himself down. His writing still is not up there with the... You know, he's not never going to win a Nobel Prize. But the good thing about him is he knows how to tell a good story and he makes you think... 
and that's that's a difficult thing to do for an author these days, and, and he does it really well. I suppose whatever you think of the, the strengths and, and the weaknesses of which we said there are many, read it. It's a good book. Compared to The Da Vinci Code, it's not nearly as good, but I think you'd have to go a, a, a long way to try and match the uh, the potency of, of uh, The Da Vinci Code, just how much of an impact it had in our uh, reading psyche. So the, the Lost Symbol, good, not as good as The Da Vinci Code, but I still shouldn't stop you reading it anyway. Well, I will. I have to say I will pick it up. I was in one of the big booksellers the other day, picked it up, read the first couple of pages and thought, actually, this is better than I thought it would be. Um, and I know Dan Brown will sell millions of these books anyway and doesn't need either your endorsement or mine. I think I will go and actually get it. Um, and I look forward to reading it. It's time for this month's book swap, that part of the programme where James and I like to swap a book that we think the other will enjoy. But before we do that, let's talk about last month's swap. James, I gave you a, a fact book. It was John Biffin's History, or Inside the House of Commons, a book that, that really just set out what the House of Commons does and how it works. How did you find it? I actually find it fascinating, I have to say that. Now, I have another book in the House, which is uh, an architectural history of the Commons, and the two sit very well together. But this one is very useful in terms of anybody who wants to understand the processes and procedures within the Commons, and that's quite critical. It's a bit old now because it's a little bit dated, um, and there are some issues in there, for example, about the disclosure of MPs' expenses and all the rest of it, which just you know make one laugh after the, the recent um, exhibition that MPs have made of themselves. But as far as the rest of it's concerned, it's a very entertaining book. It's very well worth reading, and I would certainly recommend it to anybody. Well, you give me Karen Slaughter's Faithless. It's a crime novel. Uh, a Walk in the Woods takes a sinister turn for police chief Geoffrey Tolliver and medical examiner Sarah Linton when they stumble across the body of a young girl. Uh, she's been, quite literally, scared to death. Now, this is uh, Karen Slaughter's uh, two main characters, Tolliver and Sarah, and Sarah Linton. I've got to be honest, though, James, I, I just it didn't do an awful lot for me. It was well written. It's certainly a good part of the genre. But I think, I don't know if there are better novels out there or they're just novelists who appeal to me more, but of all the the supermarket thrillers, and that's a kind of sub-genre that I think, I think does exist, Karen Slaughter wasn't one of my favourites. Well, I have to say that I agree with you, Chris, and I didn't kind of land you with a book in the hope that you would dislike it. Uh, I thought to myself, well, I kind of quite like that, but I wouldn't rush to read another one. Let's see what other people make of it. Maybe it's just the mood that you're in. Maybe it's the nature and type of the book. And again, like you, I thought it was well enough written. I thought it told a story. But I just wouldn't rush to read another one. So um, I think we'll just have to agree for once on that one. Now, this month, I want to give you... It's not a fact book. I've managed to give you a non-fiction books the last couple of months. We interviewed on the programme a few months back an author called Paul Henk. He's a Scottish author. And he writes the Nick Hunter series. Nick Hunter is a Scottish James Bond, if you like. Not so much a spy as an anti-terrorism uh, man. And... I think you'll quite enjoy this. Very, very good book. I'm not going to give you the first one in the series, a book called Debacle. Uh, for a start, that's a very difficult one to get because it's currently out of print. But it also sets up the character, and sometimes these introductory books, they spend too much time setting up the scene and not enough time with, with the action. So I'm going to give you book number two, which is called Mayhem, and it's Nick Hunter, our hero. He's off to the Middle East, and he's got to try and avert an all-out war that would destroy every country in the Middle East. It's very good. It's got politics. It's got action. It's got intrigue, and I think Nick Hunter is a, a, an underrated Scottish hero. He's an underrated international hero, and I don't know why this character is not right up there with with James Bond or, or the best of anything that Jack Higgins has come up with recently. So I'd like you to read Paul Hanks' Mayhem. 
Well, I look forward to that. I've read one or two of Paul Hanks' other series of books in which he does, I suppose you would call them a family saga, but I've never actually read any of those. I'm going to give you a book which was given to me as a gift and which I, I want back, and I know you would always do that anyway, and it's called Irish Short Stories, uh, introduced by Frank Delaney. Um, it's a folio edition book. Um, in other words, it comes in a hardback in a nice linen binding. It's got a, a hard slip case in it and, you know, nicely produced, beautifully printed. Not the best quality paper I've ever seen, but certainly very good quality and full of well-known Irish writers. And just as importantly, I want to see how you get on with the short story, which is a much underrated uh, apportionment these days. Nobody writes short stories to the same extent that they did before, and publishers dislike them. But this has got Samuel Beckett, it's got Mary Lavin, Benedict Keeley, uh, William Trevor, who is regarded as the master of the short story, Brian Friel, who's better known as a playwright, uh, Edna O'Brien, of course, John McGahern, uh, even Neil Jordan, the... Uh, the movie producer, and who is also a good writer. So I'll be interested to see whether you like that, whether you like all of them or any of them, and it would be a good introduction to you, I think, to kind of Irish literature generally. Um, you might not like it, you might, but that's the whole point of this exercise, isn't it? Let's see if we can't tempt one another, tempt our jaded palates. It's time for I Write in the show, that part of the programme where we like to discuss technology. And this month I want to talk a little bit more about Google, who've been embroiled in a legal battle because they want to become the world's librarians. And there's a few people that aren't happy about it. Well, tell me all about this, Chris, because you and I have spoken about this before. What exactly are Google doing? Well, they're involved in a massive project at the moment to scan and digitise every book they can get their hands on. If a book has ever been published, Google intend to scan it and let you search through the text. So imagine if you can remember a few words of a dusty old book your grandmother used to read you when you were a kid. Google wants you to be able to search using the words you can remember, and then they'll tell you what book you, they think you're looking for. In other words, they're trying to replicate the search function that works so well with a website, but this time with books. Well, that sounds like a good idea to me. I can often remember scraps of books, but never quite remember the title. Well, in, but, the, in theory, yes, but, but remember that under copyright law, the content of a book, the words that, that are on the page, belong to the author. So when you buy a book, the author's allowing your eyes to consume his words and enjoy his story, but that contract is between you and him. You don't then have the right to cut and paste the text onto your computer and sell copies of the book to your friends. Well, that's absolutely true. And, of course, there's a whole issue about different laws for different copyrights in different countries. Well, yeah, well, Is that not going to cause them problems? There's loads of them, actually, when it comes to, uh, to copyright laws. And uh, I, I'm, I'm out of my depth a little bit with, uh, with the legalities of it. But let me try and explain a little bit. There are dozens of different copyright laws all over the world. In the UK, currently, a book is copyrighted for the life of the author plus an additional 70 years. In some countries, it's less. In some countries, it's more. For example, in Mexico, it's life plus 100 years. In the USA, everything published prior to 1923 is now out of copyright. Anything published between 1923 and 1978 is copyrighted for the next 95 years. And anything after uh, 1970 is copyrighted for the life of the author plus 70 years. See, it's getting a little bit confusing here. And when it Already, gets, yes. Yeah, well, when it gets even worse is there's a publishing agreement called the Berne Convention that most countries have signed up to. And that says that if a book is published in multiple locations at the same time, then the country with the shortest copyright law will apply to every country covered by the convention. That's why, although everything published prior to 1923 is in the American public domain, it also applies to the UK as well. And if it wasn't for the Berne Convention, we'd have slightly different rules. So, so that's why when we hear about Google having an American legal case, that's why the, the ramifications of that will impact on what happens here in the UK. 
Well, that's interesting because you know that I have some reservations about the Amazon Kindle, which I think is a wonderful device. But I discovered, for example, the Amazon can go in and take books off your Kindle because it's run through a mobile phone system, the 3G network. Um, and apparently they've already done that with 1984, which uh, might be in the public domain in America, but isn't in the public domain in other countries. Um, so, you know, there, there are still concerns, I think, about all of this. Well, and I mean, are Google paying anything for this? Well, this is the weird thing. The, the, the deal they've worked out with the American publishing industry, okay, we, we don't quite know all the fine details yet because it's still before the courts, but at a basic level, Google have signed a deal which would guarantee protection from prosecution if they did scan a book that's still in copyright without the copyright owner's permission. So, in other words, if they did scan it and then you, the copyright holder, complained, there would be a fund that you, the copyright holder, could access to get some money but you'd also be able to ask for the book to be removed. So there is a, the important thing is here is that Google can flout copyright laws and they won't be prosecuted for doing it. Mm. I mean, at one level, I would be delighted. I actually used some of the Google stuff um, a little while ago to find a book about life in the Aran Islands um, around 1910, and it was wonderful. I was able to read bits of it uh, online, although I couldn't download it and keep it on my computer and I would cheerfully pay for a copy of it. That wouldn't worry me at all. Yeah, but, uh, but this th is, there's some issues around here still, I think. Well, there's a whole, let's put it this way. Imagine you owned a villa in the south of France that you only used once a year. Okay, Now, you hired a cleaner to keep the place tidy for you and look after it. Now, imagine that you turned up unannounced and found that the cleaner had been renting out the villa and pocketing the cash. Now, that would be a crime. In the context okay. of the Google deal... You would be able to demand the cash back and insist that the cleaner never did it again, but the cleaner wouldn't be arrested for breaking a law. And that's what's got authors upset, that their right to decide who can or cannot do something with their work has been taken away with them. And the deal only stops Google from being prosecuted. If you or I scanned a book and put it on the web, uh, we'd be doing exactly the same thing as Google, but we could be arrested and taken to the courts before it. So there's, a, there's an awful lot of issues still going with this. And the American Department of Justice, they've objected to the deal saying it could be anti-competitive and other things. So they've asked for the courts to, uh, to deal with it. So on the 6th of October, we'll know what the latest stage in the development is, but whatever the outcome, the case is not going to be finished. I think we'll watch this with some interest. There are arguments going on in various web blogs about this kind of thing, um, and I, I'm not sure even what view I have on them. I, I think my circumstances are such that I don't have enough information, although what we've talked about today has been helpful, to kind of come to a sensible view uh, so let us indeed just wait and see how all this works out. Now, in technology, you've uh, found something that's quite exciting to you because you've been eyeing up e-readers for the last year, but you've never quite bought one yet. <laughs> indeed, I have not, Chris. Unlike you, I am not an early adopter. Um, there are two kind of major e-readers, I think, out at the minute. I know there are a couple of other ones, but the first one is the Sony e-reader, which I have to say is a lovely device. Again, if you go into any of the major booksellers, they have one on display. You can play with it and look at it and you can get a nice leather cover for it, and it all sounds absolutely lovely. And the other one, of course, is the Amazon Kindle, about which we've just spoken, and which is not available here yet. However, Asus, the company that invented the netbook, say they're about to shake up the whole e-book world, e-reader world, and they're going to produce, I suppose you could call it a netbook or a double-screen netbook, uh, which will be an e-reader and which will be capable of using many of the formats which are out there in terms of the digital rights formats that people use um, and which will be very cheap, about £100. Now, if you bear in mind that the, uh, the Kindle at the moment is a couple of hundred dollars or two or three hundred dollars and only works in America and that the Sony e-reader is a lovely thing but is still about £200, I think I would be prepared to risk a hundred quid on Asus on their e-book 
because they, they invented the netbook and called it the e-book or whatever as well, um, and see how this works out. Certainly the pictures of it look lovely, but the thing isn't built yet, uh, hasn't started shipping, um, and it's kind of early days. Even so, I'm very tempted. It's time for this month's discussion, and it's all about spies this month, because James and I were down the pub a couple of weeks back, and as you do when you're down the pub, you suddenly start getting into these debates. It starts with, who would who would win a fight between blah blah and blah blah? Superman versus Batman. You all know the debate. Well, the one that we asked ourselves was, who would win a fight if it came to the best spies? Does James Bond win hands down against all comers? And James said... Well, you said no. You said there are other ones out there. So you've been away and researching other spy novels where the main character can stand up to James Bond. And who have you found that you really like that you think could do it? Well, there are three or four, I think. There are three or four which are interesting books, wonderful novels, some of them in a series. Um, and let's start with Modesty Blaze, um, who was who started life as a, a cartoon strip in the Daily Mirror, but uh, rapidly transmogrified into a whole series of books by a man called Peter O'Donnell. Now, she has a partner called Willie Garvin. They are both employed by the government on a kind of contracting basis uh, rather than, uh, you know, operating as a civil servant, which is really all James Bond is, even if he does have a license to kill. And there are some wonderful books. They were kind of big sellers in the 60s and 70s, um, late 60s, early 70s, and still very, very readable. I have two or three of them tucked in the back of my cupboard. I pulled one out the other day just to have a read of it. And I thought, that really does still stand up very much so. You know, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. It doesn't go into the same depth uh, as, I suppose, a modern-day James Bond book would in terms of, you know, how the anti-terrorism world works. Basically, the, the kind of government guy comes along and says to Modesty, could you help us out and go and sort this fellow out? And away she goes and does that. But they're full of those kinds of things that James Bond was full of, you know, exotic locations, interesting weapons, fast cars, um, and people who are... Uh, I suppose you would call them um, heroes that you could associate with, you know, people who are sympathetic and empathetic um, have with their own moral standards. And I think Modesty Blaze could stand up to James Bond any day of the week. James Monroe's The Man Who Sold Death is another one you want to talk about. That's the one with, of all the titles for this discussion. That's the one with the best title. This was written by a man called James Mitchell, who wrote these particular series of books uh, under the name of James Monroe for whatever reason. Now, James Mitchell was the guy who also wrote Callan, if you remember, for the TV. That was a good book, or a, uh, both a good book and a good uh, series, and written, written lots and lots of kind of stuff. A lot of it based in the Northeast. He was a Newcastle man, uh, and therefore he still writes about the kind of Newcastle background. But he had a character called John Craig, who was a real tough customer. Again, John Craig was kind of recruited by the, the anti-terrorism crowd, MI5, MI6, Department K, as they refer to it in the books, uh, and uh, overseen by a big fat man called Loomis. Uh, you pick, make what you, you like of that name. Um, and really, again, these books definitely stand up. The problem is that they're out of print. I've got a very bad copy of one of them. I've got a very bad copy of The Man Who Sold Death. But they're freely available on e-books and indeed on Amazon. And I would recommend anybody to go and look at them. Uh, James Monroe, The Man Who Sold Death, a no, couple no. of other titles, Die Rich, Die Happy, and the money that money can't buy. Now, I think you've made this next one up to make me say these words out loud, but it's Shibumi by Trevelyan. This is a very interesting and strange book, and a wonderful hero as well. Trevelyan was a man called Dr. Rodney Whitaker, who deliberately set out to write a whole series of novels in the style of somebody else. Now, I'm not quite sure what the style of Shibumi is, but his hero was a man called Nicholas Hale, who is a, a kind of 
um, half Asian, half Western uh, boy, growing up in the slums of Shanghai, in between uh, the First and Second World War, having to fend for himself, mostly because his father, who was eventually killed um, in the Chinese invasion of Shanghai, just kind of let him run the streets. And he learned all those ancient mystical Chinese arts, you know, Chinese boxing, what we would today, I suppose, call karate or kung fu, and turned himself into a kind of wonderful hero. And decent kind of character with, character with an absolute true moral sense, but also perfectly willing to snap your neck if he thought you would annoy him too much. And your final and one is again, Eric Van Lustbatter, which again I think you've made up just to make me say that out loud with the ninja. Well, well Lustbatter then if you prefer. I'm just kind of attempting in my poor German to get the right cr- pronunciation. And the man mightn't be German at all. He wrote a book and then subsequently a series of books called The Ninja. Uh, again where he had a similar hero to the last fella. Uh, instead of Nicholas Hell, his hero is Nicholas Lanier. And again, they are wonderfully written. I mean, they're very much the airport thriller, the, the supermarket thriller, as you described them earlier. But really, you know, exciting, entertaining. Some of them quite naughty, quite erotic in bits, but only in bits. And again, go into some depth uh, as to the ancient Chinese and Japanese martial arts. Now, all of this was before, you know, ninjas became kind of figures of fun and appeared in every dopey uh, Western movie that you could ever think about. And these books absolutely stand up. Don't read any, any of Eric Van Lustbatter's earlier stuff. He wrote some kind of science fiction fantasy. And I'm a lover of science fiction fantasy, and they're rubbish. But he definitely came into his home, uh, his own, I should say, with The Ninja. Two of the reasons that James Bond is dated now is that the sophistication, the glamorous world that he had to go into as a spy is much more accessible now to us all. Not necessarily because we're all going to go to parties at the, uh, at the the Syrian embassy where we're all dressing up in ball gowns and dinner jackets, but we can see more of that in films and television. And the other thing is, is that the gadgets that he used, we use in our everyday lives, and it's so difficult to come up with a gadget that serves a purpose and is believable. I think that's true. Uh, but you've got to remember that if you read the James Bond books as opposed to kind of concerning yourself with Q in the films, that they are very different. I mean, some of the James Bond books are very cruel and very dark. And that was, of course, very much the spirit of the times. I mean, Ian Fleming had been in uh, the Office of Naval Intelligence um, in Whitehall during the course of the war and was not afraid to kind of say, well, if somebody is causing us trouble, we will kill them. Whereas we're kind of a bit wary of that, uh, perhaps properly so these days. The other thing that has changed, of course, is that our enemies have changed. You know, now it's asymmetric war is not what they call it, you know, where, uh, you know, we do, we're not facing the Russians over a barricade of missiles and all the rest of it. We don't have to worry about death to spies, smirch, smirch, spionum, as it used to say in the James Bond books. Now we have to worry about, you know, uh, people who are blowing up uh, backpacks on the tube and things like that. So it's a very different world. Uh, but even so, I think there is still room for a good spy novel, and particularly this one, The Contractor, I think demonstrates that. Right, so you've got Colin McKenna as The Contractor, you've got Trevelyan with Shibumi, you've got Eric Van Lustbatter with The Ninja, James Monroe with The Man Who Sold Death, and Peter O'Donnell with, uh, uh, what, what was this one called? The well, they're all Modesty Blaze. Modesty Blaze. Right, you can pick one to go up against James Bond in a fight to the death. Shibumi, Nicholas Hell. Um, absolutely the, the, the best character, absolutely the best book, although they're all very good and I would recommend any of them to anybody, but there's no doubt in my mind that Nicholas Hell would win hands down. 
Uh, we've got an awful lot to get through this month. I've been reading lots and lots of books. And the other one that I've been reading and which I didn't expect to enjoy, but really am enjoying, is a book called Bounder by a man called Graham McCann. And this is a biography of the great Terry Thomas. You remember a cigarette holder, Gap in the Teeth? I don't, you know, actually. I don't remember him at all. So I'm looking forward to, to hearing a little bit about him. Well, Terry Thomas was, I suppose, the... Uh, it was a character that he had built from himself. I mean, he just on the basis of the biography itself, it tells us that he just entirely made himself up out of the whole cloth from he was about eight or nine. And he played this always kind of absolutely rotten English cad, literally a bounder in the old sense of the word. Um, he had a very particular and well-known shape and form to his face and features. He had the gap between his two front teeth. He never went out unless he was absolutely immaculate, uh, dressed in fantastic waistcoats, bow ties, uh, a long and very expensive cigarette holder, um, and he just portrayed that English upper-class twit to absolute perfection. And what's the what's the biography like? What, what made you pick it up, first of all? It's an unusual well, one to go for. Just, well, that, indeed, that's, that's not one that I would normally go for, and it was just because it was a show business thing. It was Terry Thomas, and always not as well-known to you as he would be to me, and that reflects the difference in our ages. Uh, but, I mean, he, this was a guy who was never... Never off the television, uh, never out of the cinema in, I suppose, the 60s and 70s up to about the 80s. Um, and always playing the same character. He was one of these guys uh, who never really uh, portrayed or, or grew as an actor and portrayed other people. He just played himself. But it was a character which fitted into lots and lots of wonderful films. And he was always amusing, always funny, always entertaining. So what's the book called and who's it by? The, the book is called Bounder by a man called Graham McCann, who appears to have written, and I'll look up some other, some of his stuff, but he appears to have written, for example, uh, other books about show business of the time, and particular books about, uh, for example, Dad's Army and all the rest of it. Um, and he appears to have a kind of history of writing these kinds of things. And that's absolutely wonderful. You know, there are people obviously out there who specialise in addressing bits of literature that we might not otherwise find. And I have to say, I found this kind of, uh, moving and fascinating is the thing that it says in the back of the Daily Express, but it's absolutely true. It's just a wonderful book. It's entertaining. It's amusing. It doesn't hide at all any of the man's faults. But it's also uh, decent and generous in its approach to him. Um, you know, he went, he went through a dozen women, for example, um, you know, wives and girlfriends and all the rest of it, and seems to have been a bit of a cad, but still at heart a decent guy. Well, I've been reading a biography this month, uh, n not of a cad of the stage and screen, but of a, a, a giant of the science world, uh, Neil Armstrong. It's, uh, it's the first ever authorised biography about the first man in the moon. It's called First Man. And uh, I was reading it because in July it was the 40th anniversary of the moon landings. It was sort of back in our collective consciousness. And uh, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to pick up this book and, uh, and see what it's like. It is aimed squarely at space geeks and science fans. Do you class yourself me as either? Me, therefore, me. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. I picked it up and I thought, I'm going to really like this. However, I, although I am a space geek and a science fan, I'm not a scientist. I, I was more of the artist at school. So the level of technology speak is it's obsessively researched. But, but then with Neil Armstrong reading over the manuscript to check the facts, I, I suppose I can understand why the author, James Hansen, was quite so meticulous. It's a book that looks in detail at Armstrong's flight training, his combat missions in Korea, and as you would expect, his time with NASA. And the chapters that deal with the Apollo landings give an almost minute by minute account of what went on so I found it very fascinating to read this book I would love that I have particular memories of 1969 which is one of the times when the troubles started in Northern Ireland alone had been kind of rumbling along below that but at the same time 
man was reaching out to the moon. We couldn't do it at the moment. Um, and as you know, last week we talked about a book which I had read called Rocket Men, which covered some of the same ground. But I would like to read about Buzz Aldrin, I do have to say. Well, you mentioned Rocketman, and you were quite interested by the relationships that Neil Armstrong had with Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins, the other two guys in the, uh, the Apollo 11 mission. Well, this book, it does go into that relationship, and it's riveting reading for anyone who's watched the, these men captivate the world for the last 40 years, and the story of how Armstrong came to be the first man out of the capsule and what it did to Buzz Aldrin being the second man out of the capsule is explained in detail. So that's some of the good things about it. The worst thing about this book is, although Neil Armstrong has done a lot of fascinating things in his life, he hasn't really a fascinating personality. He's quite shy, he's reclusive, he's strangely normal. And if that's not bad enough, the other thing is you don't really get to know what makes him tick. So you're left with the thought that if you did, you'd just be unfulfilled by it. So although he does a lot of good things, you don't get into the the inner workings of his mind. But apart from that, it's great. It's uh, If you can get past the science, First Man, the, the, the story of Neil Armstrong, is very good and I recommend it to you this month. It's time for Bits and Pieces, that part of the programme where we like to talk about things that just don't fit anywhere else in the programme. Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol. It's become the best-selling adult novel ever. It's sold over a million copies in North America and the UK in its first 24 hours. It's already beaten the record for the most sales ever of a hardback adult novel, which was Thomas Harris's Hannibal. And it's only been eclipsed by J.K. Rowling's final Harry Potter book, which sold 2,632,685 books in its first 24 hours. So good news for Dan Brown, but I think J.K. Rowling's record will stand for quite a long time. One of the things that I want to talk about, Chris, is I want to talk about the death of an individual, and not the death of a novelist, the death of a man called Troy Kennedy Martin, who was a writer for television principally, although he also wrote for the movies as well. He was the man who invented the concept of Z cars, and indeed held on to the kind of rights for the show, so that for as long as Z cars was being produced and publicised, he was getting an, uh, a royalty for it. But he wrote lots of other stuff as well. He wrote Edge of Darkness, for example, that well-known kind of dark BBC thriller, um, you know, about 10 or 15 years ago. He wrote The Italian Job. Uh, He wrote lots of other films. And I'm just sorry to see him going. He clearly was one of those people who could take up his pen and turn his writing skills to anything. In October, we're going to find out who's won this year's Nobel Prize for Literature. And if you're a betting man, then according to the bookies, the Israeli novelist Amos Oz is favourite to one with odds of 4 to 1. British authors in the betting odds include A.S. Byatt at 50 to 1, Salman Rushdie at 80 to 1, and Ian McEwan, who I would never really think of for a, for a, a Nobel Prize, at 100 to 1. The other interesting one in the odds from Ladbrokes is that Bob Dylan has quite good odds, 25 to 1, to pick up the Nobel Prize for Literature this year. I find Bob Dylan a bit of a strange one. I mean, I know there is an argument that songwriting lyrics are also poetry, and it's one that I would accept because lots of, for example, William Butler Yeats's poems have been turned into songs. Well, do you want there's to, another. Do you want me to tell but, you in advance who's won the Nobel Prize for Literature this year? Yeah, well, go ahead. Let me know who oh, that well, is. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. Oh, the good. Are blowing in the wind. What else have you found? I, a couple of interesting things. First of all, a little device. Now, we've been talking about complicated things like e-readers, and what I've got is much less complicated than that. It's called a book chair, which was given to me by a present by my daughters. And basically what it is is a little deck chair for your book. And if you are like me and live alone and have a sad and uneventful life, you're very happy to sit up at the dinner table, eat your dinner, and read a book at the same time. I wouldn't do it in company, but I always do it when I'm on my own. And this is a deck chair. You slot your book into it. It's got two little snibs, I suppose we would call them, to hold it open at the right page. And it's a really useful little thing. Uh, and you can fold it up then and put it in the top of the cupboard or into the cupboard once you've had your dinner and not look sad if you have visitors. 
One more thing from me, next month sees the release of Twitter Achua, the world's greatest books, presented in 20 tweets or less. It's written by two 19-year-old guys, and it condenses the world's best-known works into tweets. We'll talk about it next month on the show. You can follow the lads on Twitter. There's something slightly disturbing about reducing the great works of literature to tweets, but I've given it a shot. Uh, do you want to hear my Twitter version of Romeo and Juliet? Right, go ahead. Two teenagers fall in love, then they die. That would actually be quite an amusing sort of a party game, wouldn't it? You know, you've got to do it. How many characters is it? 178 or something like that? The number that you can get on your mobile phone anyway. So I, I, that would be a laugh. Well, that's it for this month's programme. We're back well, on the 1st of November with another Ready Steady Read. Until then, we're going to try and condense this entire programme down into one tweet or less. We might be able to get it done in the next 30 days. James, what do you think? A Scots guy and an Irish guy talk nonsense about books. There you go. Until next month, the 1st of November... Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.